So welcome back guys to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I am your host as always, Adam MacDonald. And first I want to say thank you to all of those who tuned in and listened to the first episode with myself and Alan Aragon. Your feedback is invaluable. And for those who left a review or rating, thank you so much because that does ultimately help with the rankings and the SEO ratings, etc., which helps me get up there in the world or hierarchy of health and fitness podcasts out there and ultimately or so i've been told that helps with getting better guests on so it can give you better value going forward in the future so please do do that if you are listening on apple on spotify on youtube or wherever that may be in this episode i talk with lyle mcdonald lyle has been someone who i've been reading or looking up to for many many years 10 years plus and he's one of the grandfathers within he's not actual grandfather but he's one of the grandfathers of the evidence-based health and fitness industry so this episode we specifically talk about stubborn fat loss which is the kind of areas of fat that are very difficult to get rid of the last few pounds of fat and what you can do about it if you can do anything about it and you know is there a point in actually worrying about that so we talk all about the physiology of stubborn fat and everything to do with it so we were supposed to talk about rapid fat loss as well but we just got so in depth into this episode that we decided to make a second part so i digress now let's listen to this episode with lyle mcdonald well Lyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thanks for having me adam so tell me lyle, how up. did yeah, yeah, I know this is your second of third podcast. Second of today, three for today, you know. yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Yeah, so so tell me, how did you get to where you are today? How did you get into this whole kind of, um, I don't know, what would you even call yourself? Uh, well, I know what other people would call me, which is just biggest pain <laughs> in the ass on the internet, but I don't know, I like people used to throw, you know, whatever, training a nutrition theorist, I tend to be a little bit more involved than just... You know, the research, uh, I don't train, you know, I train, I've got one lifter, female power lifter I train right now. Um, so I don't know, I just contribute information and whatever people can do what they want. As far as how I got here, so I was born in 1970 and kind of grew up, you know, uh, very uh, middle class type of lifestyle. Both my parents were musicians. So, I mean, I played sports as a kid because that's just what you did, but I can't say I was really into into sports. Uh, in the 80s, I played a lot of video games, ate your traditional uh, middle class diet, which over is like, you know, white bread, lunch meat, cheese, mayonnaise, you know, spread, uh, chips, snack, you know, and I was sort of a chubby little kid. I got to high school and my high school had mandatory athletics and I got, uh, so I, I did that every quarter. I got involved in cycling, swimming. That led me to triathlon. You know, there's, there's kind of that old trite statement, you know, your, your passion, you don't choose your passion, your passion chooses you. And, and sort of whatever, it just grabbed me. And some of it was like, I don't know, I saw the changes in you know, my body and muscle and body fat and just kind of got obsessed. So that would lead me to UCLA to study exercise physiology. And I went through, originally I wanted to be like an underpaid gymnastics coach because I'd gotten into gymnastics my senior year. Then I got injured and wanted to be a physical therapist. And then I got into competitive uh, rollerblading and got very in, in, interested in competition. And it was kind of like everything else. I wanted to fix myself. I wanted to be better than I was. And at the time, you know, I read all the magazines. I read all the claims. I, I wanted to believe they were true, just like we do now, all the supplements. And I read all the muscle magazines. 
every month for years because you know maybe this one will have the secret maybe next maybe next month and um would go to bug my professors and they would tell me that all this research i was reading about or, or the claims in the magazines were garbage so i got myself down to the biomedical library and started just reading the original research. And trust me, it wasn't easy. We had to use Ovid and there was no PubMed and, and none of that stuff, physical journals. And um, so from there, I graduated in 93 and I was doing the trainer thing. And this was when the internet started because I'm old. And I was on it from like 94 and uh, got involved in, there was a, an old Usenet group called Misc Fitness Weights. And that's where I just, you know, I was straight out of college. I knew everything, right? Ha <laughs> ha. Mm. And, um, but I like to write, or rather I like to hear myself talk. And people seemed to like it. So as you got into the, the, the mid nineties, people realized that they needed websites, but nobody needed, nobody knew why, right? We just knew that we needed websites. So people wanted to pay me to write. All right, oh, okay. So, and then I, you know, my first book I would do on the ketogenic diet, I published that I want to say 98. And, you know, really just in the right place at the right time, quite honestly. I mean, I, I like to think I'm good at what I do, but I was lucky. Uh, I was on the internet and established a reputation in some good ways and some bad ways. Um, for, for, but it was before all the competition was there. I would hate to come onto the internet now because the amount of marketing it, you have to do is relentless on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and podcasts and YouTube videos and how you actually have time to do anything else is beyond me. So, and since then I've, I've just <clears throat> cranked out books on different topics. Uh, I tend to not like to revisit old topics, which is why I've written about so many different things. So, you know, my low carb diet book was first and that nearly broke me. Uh, like I couldn't finish another book for years because it was such an enormous project. And then I've done, you know, my rapid fat loss handbook, Flexible dieting, which I wrote in 2004, and of course at that time nobody was ready to listen. What do you mean you you don't have to diet clean and rigidly and can reach your goals? And now 15 years later, yeah, that's all everybody talks about. And uh, yeah, at least at least I'm not bitter. And um, you know, stubborn fat solution, ultimate diet too. I wrote that protein book in the 2000s, and uh, some weird other weird little booklets. And then, of course, I just published the women's book two years ago, and that was another nightmare project. So, like, I look at my writing history, and about every decade, I write a book that makes me want to die. It's ketogenic. It was in 98, and then protein was in 2008, and then 2017-18 uh, was the women's book. These horribly heavily re And then in between, I write little booklets because they're faster to write. So, like, I've always been interested in all aspects of it because, again, I wanted to be a better athlete. So I was always interested in training physiology. And, I've, I mean, I've lifted weights since I was 15 to one degree or another and supplements and diet, and I've always been interested in fat loss because I was a chubby little kid and – at the end of the day, we're all trying to fix ourselves, right? Psychiatrists or psychologists are always a little crazy. Dietitians were usually overweight. I just turned it into Yeah, a and it seems like you developed it similar way to a lot of the, uh, I suppose, quote-unquote evidence-based uh, practitioners, which is, which is now in itself a, a term well, thrown around by almost everybody. To be more accurate, and I'm going I'm to gonna toot my own horn a little bit, they developed a style like mine because in, 2000, in 1996, when I was first on the internet, I was really one of the first people. Like the magazines, Muscle Media 2000 had started using scientific references a little bit. I was really the first one to try bringing research to a field filled with nonsense. 
like talking about how meal frequency doesn't matter. You do not have to eat. Like I was one of the first people to write about. I, I would like again. I don't want to make it sound. It probably would have gotten there anyway. But I I was there way before. Most of these guys have told me they came yeah. up reading. My and I, books. I, I make no mistake that to a great degree I created that you can see it either as a benefit or a mess on the internet depending on. And I've I've been a little disappointed with the direction it's been going because it's becoming just as brotastic and anecdotal as the all the other bro science. But yeah, I I was really one of the big ones I think earlier on pushing for using research and being evidence-based. And I'm not saying the guys now aren't doing a good job of it. It's led to us having a lot of researchers that are actually lifters. Like you mentioned, Eric Helms, when we were, before we started recording, he's a powerlifter, natural bodybuilder who does research. He wrote probably the first review paper on evidence-based anything for physique athletes. And that's kicked off a whole renaissance of research on the topic. So we've got a lot of people that kind of came out of that, but, um, I'm old. I'm now the old man in the field. I remember when I started. I was 25 and young, and now I'm now I'm the old guy in the field. And uh, so a lot of that you can either credit or blame me for. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it. it was around 2009 or 10 when I actually kind of discovered that the flex magazines and, and muscular development magazines that I was buying when I was 17, 18 weren't really the best topic. And I think that yep. the way I actually found, I suppose... I hate to use the word evidence-based because that in itself is almost like a bro term now. But but the people who Agreed. are using you know proper research or at least science and somewhat. And it was true. I think yep. Lane Norton's column in Muscular Development. He did it. I think it got cut uh-huh. probably soon after because he wasn't as jacked as the other guys. So they didn't really. People probably didn't care too much about him. Right. But then I would I'd always search yeah, either yourself plus topic on Google. Or Lane Norton plus topic, or Alan Aragon right. plus topic, and yeah. and I would just because I didn't know how to read sure. science when I was eighteen. I actually I did business in, in college, sure. so I I was just like oh, I, nice. I, I I didn't want to sit through and read some papers, and, and I wouldn't have a clue what is going on. I may as well be reading it. So I would I would yeah, no, I Google it. those topics and and research and, and and you know look at the opinions and of the the U tree guys, and and so I would say that you you were like one of the or for me at least one of the I suppose evidence-based um, yeah. practitioners or taught leaders in the you know health and fitness space. Yeah, and and I think a lot of this again. I was there so much earlier, and I mean I've been writing art. I've got nearly five hundred articles on my website now, however many years later, and so I've just been around longer than most of these guys because I'm I just got there first. I was like I said, twenty four. My final year in college, I had a dial-up modem back when AOL gave you four free hours. I was there. I watched the internet change from Usenet, which most of your listeners probably never even heard of, to mailing lists, list serves, to the early forums, which kind of dominated through the nights, through the the early into the early 2000s and then forums, uh, which really became the, the next big popular. And then, of course, social media with MySpace and Facebook. And that's kind of now excuse me, where we're at. And um, so, yeah, so I've just like watched it develop. And, and like most of these guys, like, I mean, Alan was on my forum. Oh, man, I want to say at least mid-2000s back before anyone yeah, had so- ever heard of him. And a couple of the others, yeah. but Borg, yeah, Borg yeah. Fagerly, uh, Blade, uh, Martin Birkin was like, I we had, we had uh, 
let's just say heated uh, enthusiastic discussions. We'll just put it that way. And, um, you know, that was before Alan put out Girth Control, his first book. And, and uh, you know, they we, we at one point I even talked about it. I'm just like, look, why don't you all write down your approaches to stuff? And I'll just edit it. I'll, I'll act as the because I was being lazy. I'm like, I'm going to let them write the book and they'll just put my name. We'll put my name as editor on the bottom and and sort of get them some exposure because I thought they had some good things to say. And and then that sort of was followed up later by some of the current crew. So, um, so yeah, I've just been around longer. There, there's if you if you want to read, there's probably an article on my website about almost any topic you care to name. Um, I'm actually running out of stuff to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I, I was speaking. <laughs> I got, I got, I yeah, got I was speaking to Alan to actually on, on, I think it was either Monday or Tuesday evening, and he said the exact same thing. I was like, how did it start for you? And he's like, on the message, on the forums or the, the message boards. And you, like, th- if you think about it today, mm-hmm. it's so, like, like you said, how would you even begin to fathom starting or trying to stand out without being jacked or spending your whole day on instagram sure. and people do that they spend their whole day on, on instagram posting oh, yeah. like people it's like a live feed 24 7 in their instagram stories just talking i mean that would drive you absolutely insane but but it but it has to be like it's so there's such a relentless amount of information that if you don't if you're not updating every 15 minutes people forget and they're just whatever the next big thing is and i mean it's sort of since i get this question well, well a people are like how can they be like me? And the answer is, you don't want to be like me. Trust me. I, I, I just kind of like, it, it's, I don't know if I'm crazy. I do, I, you know, I'm obsessive of when I'm researching things. And I don't know if being obsessive makes me crazy or being crazy makes me obsessive. But like when I have a folder that has 30 reviews on protein requirements and I've read them all, you know, for the women's book, I was reading these review papers on women's fat metabolism 10 12 papers multiple times a piece to try to figure it out and like you don't you don't want to be me and anyway if you want to be successful as a trainer or on the internet is here's what you need to do if you're a dude get big arms if you're a girl get a nice butt and go put them on instagram because quite honestly even in the day of quote-unquote evidence-based which is still a microscopic portion of the internet despite what people want to think that will get you a following. Go, I mean, that's why I got an Instagram, but I keep meaning to, to start doing, you know, booty shots of RDLs and a thong. Actually, nobody wants to see that. But, like, I keep joking. I'm just like, yep, my whole point of being on Instagram, other than to tell bad jokes, is uh, I'm going to be the next big booty Instagram well, yeah. model hit. So, But the sad reality is, among the majority, that will get you a bigger following than any amount of tediously researched. I think- Art. Yeah, I think we can uh, end the, the podcast there then. Thanks for that advice. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, it's true, honestly. Like, it's, it's, I got into discussion with some. This is at the, the ISSN meeting uh, five, six, seven years ago. And they were part of the evidence based crew. And they were like, I really think it's changing. And I said, It's really not. Go, the, the problem is when you are a part of that environment, when you are one of the research based people, the people who seek you out are those that like research based stuff. And it's very, very easy to get the sensation that the entire internet is that, but it's not. I guarantee you bodybuilding.com has more visitors in an hour or in a day than the entirety of the evidence-based websites or Facebook pages get in a week. I guarantee it. And, And I'm not saying that to, I mean, I did it. You said you did it. When you're younger, yeah. you don't know any better. 
What are you going to be drawn by? Some lab coat nerd talking about mTOR or a dude with 20-inch arms, right? I started in the muscle magazines just like you did, just like we all did. It's very easy to look at those people and go, how can you be so stupid? Because how would they know any different, right? How would they know any better than what they see in the majority media? So it's very easy to think that, yeah, the evidence base, yeah, maybe maybe 10% of the trainees on the internet give a crap about what we say, but everybody else is going to bodybuilding.com and Team Nation, and that's just the reality. I'm okay with it. I've never tried to target the mainstream or the majority because I can't. I don't have the marketing power or the writing style. I would rather just know my niche and cater to it and, uh, you know, be a big fish in a smaller pond because that works better. Um, yeah, I think I remember the, the when I first got into bodybuilding, and I suppose it's a little bit unusual, but when I was a teenager, I actually just loved bodybuilding and like pro bodybuilding, like IFBB pro bodybuilding, and Ronnie Coleman was competing around that time, and the first supplement, other than like whey protein that I ever took, was NO Explode, and like uh-huh. when I was 16, I didn't drink coffee, 15, 16, but I took this um, pre-workout NO Explode, and <coughs> I mean, the, the amount of caffeine in that, I was like you know blown away by like how magical it was just simply because of the amount of caffeine that i had so i think yeah like a lot of people just kind of fall into it and then if you get more and more into you know into the evidence base and into like learning about it then you'll start to, to kind of figure that out but sure um and, and eventually like what i find you know i my books have always been not only slightly more technical but like they they're honest if you want to lose fat you got to eat less and extra like it's not what people want to hear and that's not what sells now i could try to go get the mainstream i could go try to to market against all the generic diet books but they've got millions of dollars and tell people what they want to hear and i wait for people to come to me i usually get the folks that are like i did everything else and it didn't work i did everything i read in the popular media and it didn't work and either they get referred to me or they find me through whatever way and they're just like okay your way sucks because it's hard but it works and you just have to kind of come to that eventually. Or you get lucky um, in terms of, you know, finding information. It's not too terrible. And, like, it's easy. It's easy to criticize the majority of the Internet stuff for being utter garbage. And let's face it, yeah. most of it is. But that's always been the nature of the health, fitness, and diet industry. 99% of it is absolute garbage because that's where the money is to be made. But it doesn't – even the quote-unquote bro science – you know, it's always interesting because people are like, oh, the research is just finding what they always said. Well, yeah, but in many cases, it's contradicting what they believe, like the meal frequency thing, like the, a lot of the stuff. That's why we do controlled science. That's why anecdote is not science, because you find that, yeah, they got a lot right. Make no mistake. And they got a lot wrong. And we're fine, you know, so it's a matter of kind of figuring out uh, what 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 holds up and what doesn't. Um, and, you know, so whatever, if people come across good enough information, that's not too stupid. Um, I mean, a lot of it in this industry, the big issue with diet is you frequently get people that their claim to success is being hot or skinny. They've never been like, that's sort of what, what get, gets them to be an expert, you know, or just the whole, I did a physique contest. I'm a diet expert now. No, you, you got to stage and congratulations, but that doesn't mean anything or, the drug issue can never be ignored. And that's always been the big problem is that when steroids allow you to grow, no matter what dumb shit you do in the gym, a lot of dumb shit gets promoted because it all works. And naturals, as I'm sure you've found out 
possibly the hard way, it's just not effective or it's not optimal trying to follow the Flex Magazine workouts, none of which are real, by the way. They were all ghostwritten. None of those athletes, none of the bodybuilders ever did that stuff. They just had to print something every month. So anyway, um, so yeah, the point of this is everybody starts where they start. And we all started by reading the muscle magazines because that's who you're going to believe. And some people get tired of being run around in circles and eventually graduate to something that seems to be a little more So I want to talk a little bit about some topics that I, I suppose you would be still even recognized as uh, as the, the forefront or, or the the main person for yeah. if you say Google search it, you like if you Google search flexible dieting, I'm sure that you're not going to be the first person on Google anymore, but maybe <laughs> back in the day. You you maybe were anymore, uh, even though you, you probably were the first to you know introduce that uh, over twenty years ago. But but with, with the likes of yeah. rapid fat loss or the protein sparing or uh, protein sparing moderate fast, so them two being kind of the same thing, or you know one being a conjunction of the other, sure. and also stubborn fat loss. So I, I could boil that down into right. getting to maybe extreme levels of body fat. You you seem to be the the main person or the go-to guy or at least have written to in an extent um, about those topics so do you want to explain to me a little bit about what or your opinion I mean of or your idea of what stubborn fat is because I've in the last few weeks of my competition prep I've had like areas of stubborn fat right so my legs and my typical typical lower back and I started to post a little bit and you know I also <laughs> fed into that kind of Instagram thing and post a little bit about your know, being and stuff and everybody then, everybody is like, oh, where do you buy your Yohim bean? And I'm like, wait, you're probably like, the people, mm. is it only that when you get a certain level of body fat percentage that you can actually say that you have stubborn areas of body fat? Or can somebody who's quite higher body fat have stubborn body fat? And, you know, can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so first, kind of let me just explain like what what that means, because there's also people who are like, it's just all body fat. Right. So back in the day, body fat was just body fat. Right. We didn't like it. It didn't do anything. It was just, we know way more like fat cells are enormously active, releasing all kinds of chemical compounds to do all kinds of ridiculous things. Um In the body. But what we also know is that different areas of fat are physiologically different. Right, so there's a very old observation, right, that women and men at the same body fat percentage had very different health risks. Men were much more at risk for like diabetes, heart disease, things of that nature, and they didn't know why. And then when they started to look, it's like, okay, now we realize that central fat, right, gut fat, especially that visceral fat around the organs, the male fat pattern is associated with heart disease. Females' lower body fat is very biologically, I'll say sluggish for lack of a better word, right? So visceral fat is very active. It is dumping fat into the bloodstream, going to the liver almost constantly, and that causes health problems. Now, it makes it very easy to lose, but it also, if you've got a lot of it, causes health problems. Women's lower body fat does not. It's a storage depot for when they get pregnant. So that was one of those early, is that fat, not just total fat, but fat distribution method. And as they've done lots of studies, right? Well, okay, let me back up. So let me talk a little bit about fat, mo fat cell metabolism and fat storage and fat mobilization. I'll try not to get too far into the weeds in this. So the, for years, we thought that the, the major hormones affecting fat cell metabolism are insulin, 
right? That's the big one. Insulin tends to cause calorie storage throughout the body, and it also inhibits fat mobilization. The other big hormone were the, the catecholamines, which in the U.S. we call adrenaline and noradrenaline, and everywhere else in the world they call epinephrine and norepinephrine. Adrenaline slash epinephrine is released from the adrenal gland, affects the whole body like fight or flight hormone. When you exercise, it raises heart rate. It increases blood flow, it raises blood pressure, blah, 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 blah. Noradrenaline, norepinephrine is released from nerve terminals and tends to work very much at the cells that it's released at. Similar effects, but one is systemic and one is local. So the catecholamines tend to mobilize fat, right? So we've got this kind of... Uh, Seesaw effect. If insulin is high and the catecholamines are low, tend to get fat storage and inhibited fat mobilization. If the reverse is true, like during exercise, insulin is lowered and the catecholamines are higher, you tend to get fat mobilization. There's another big hormone that I believe I was probably the first one to even to, to write about, which is called atrial natriuretic peptide, ANP. It's actually released from the heart, believe it or not, and represents this totally separate fat mobilization pathway that I've written about, I think, on my website. It's definitely in the book. Not Kind of neither here nor there. So this alone kind of explains some of it. Now, hormones bind to receptors, right? Insulin binds to the insulin receptor. On fat cells, there's two big receptors. They're called beta receptors and alpha receptors. Beta receptors, think of as the accelerator. When catecholamines bind to them, this increases fat mobilization. The alpha receptors, think of those as a break. When alpha receptors are activated, they inhibit fat mobilization. And which one of these dominates, it's a hormone, I don't want to get too far into it, but you've, so you've got these two, two different receptors, so an accelerator and a break. Now, fat cells in different parts of the body have different proportions of alpha and beta receptors, right? If you have more beta receptors and less alpha receptors, it's very easy to mobilize that fat. If you have less beta receptors and more alpha receptors, it's much harder to mobilize that fat. And in the context, something I mentioned, women's lower body fat has nine times the alpha receptors as the beta receptors. It's easy to store fat and it's very hard to mobilize. But what you see, and so they've looked at visceral fat, very easy to mobilize, very hard to inhibit. Lots of beta receptors, no alpha receptors, insulin doesn't work as well. Super, super active. Easy to store, easy to get rid of, right? When we start a diet, if you're over 15% body fat as a dude, you probably experience this, right? You start losing fat and you don't yep. look any better, but you feel leaner. Like that, that thickness in your midsection, go, like you can suddenly you can do a vacuum, you can pull your stomach in. You don't look any different. I mean, your stomach's yeah, you flat. Visibly, you, like, you, you haven't lost uh, fat underneath the skin, but you just feel leaner. Right. And that's because visceral fat goes away the most easily and most quickly. Then there's abdominal fat, right? And was, I mean, there's upper body fat too, right? Like we all know when we get lean, what happens? Your shoulders just get ripped and your face fat often frequently collapses and your chest gets ripped and then you look at your stomach and go... Well, damn. The people on my forum are like, been dieting and I'm lean, but I still have abdominal fat. What's wrong with me? I go, well, you're, you're a guy. That's your genetics. That's where men store body fat. But even if you start looking at abdominal body fat, there's an upper area, there's a lower area, and there's a deep area, right? This, so this is the fat underneath the skin, not the visceral fat. So even abdominal fat, 
mobilizes and stores at different rates. And what happens when you diet, right? So you start to get lean from the inside out. Visceral fat is the easiest. The deep abdominal fat is next. The upper superficial abdominal fat is next. The lower superficial abdominal fat is next. And then hips and thighs are last. So, and again, you've gone through this, right? When you diet, what happens? Your upper body gets shredded. You, well, you feel leaner. Your upper body starts to lean out. You continue to feel leaner. Your upper abs come in. And then your lower abs and, and love glutes. handles are last. And frequently low back. Is a and glutes area. as well. I'm only starting to now, see men, the glutes. What's that? Yeah, now some... Right now, some right now, some men do carry relatively more lower lower body fat. That's some do, some don't. Like a lot, of, and and the glutes are different. Some of that realize ten years ago, even fifteen years ago, men didn't have to have striated glutes on on stage. That is a fair that level of conditioning, especially for naturals, it's relatively recent. Back in the day, that wouldn't have mattered. But now it does just because the level of condition. Yeah, I think uh, I was watching so um, just on that topic. I, I was watching so uh, a DVD from Lane Norton from like his last sh pro show, which was like, like a good few years ago, maybe, maybe even eight, nine years ago. And I was watching it a couple yeah. weeks ago and uh, I was like, oh, wow, I'm like six, seven weeks out from a show and I'm leaner than he is. And he's a pro bodybuilder, but he wouldn't be able to have that standard anymore. Correct. Yeah, it's just that the, the level of conditioning has changed over the last decade or so, maybe a little bit longer. I don't keep track of it. So, and then what you see, right? So if you get really deep into the weeds on the physiology, what you see is that all these different fat depots, you're seeing different sensitivity to insulin, different ratios of alpha and beta receptors. Blood flow is an issue, right? So if, like women's hip and thigh fat is very cold if you, to the touch because the blood flow is very poor. Right. And this is an issue because you can mobilize fat out of a fat cell all day, every day, but the fat cell can't burn it. It has to go into the bloodstream, and get carried away so it can be burned somewhere else in the heart or skeletal muscle or liver. So if you've got an area with poor blood flow, it doesn't matter if you mobilize the fat. It goes out of the bloodstream and goes right back into the fat cell. And you find these differences and they tend to scale in exactly the order I described that, you know, it's a visceral fat, lots of blood flow, easy to mobilize, hard to store. Uh, deep abdominal fat, little bit harder, little bit, you know, still easy to store, little bit harder to mobilize, and then it just goes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for men typically, well, get outside of the, the ripped glutes thing, for like the typical male, generally ab and, and ab low back and, uh, you know, love handle super iliac fat will be the quote unquote stubborn fat. And it's stubborn because blood flow is lower, it's got less beta receptors to help mobilize the fat. It's got more alpha receptors to inhibit mobilization. You often, you even see differences. I, I talk about this in stubborn fat, the types of fatty acids that are stored. Stubborn fat tends to store more saturated fats and they're harder to mobilize. Like chain length of the fatty acid changes how easily it's mobilized enzymatically. And like I said, you can get as deep in the weeds of this as you want, but it sort of doesn't matter. Blood flow, all that sort of stuff. So, so what's happening, so like, so technically, yes. Technically, if you are a male at 30% body fat or a female at 35% body fat, do you have stubborn fat? Yes, obviously that woman has hip and thigh fat. It's going to be very hard to mobilize. The man will have abdominal, the, the, the thing is that the body will tend to mobilize fat from easiest to hardest. 
So yeah, yes, I'm you not, have not... it, but you can't do anything about it because there's there's really no strategy that's going to. Pre- I mean, but I'm gonna I'll come back to that in a second because there is some really interesting research on this that ties directly into my stubborn fat protocols. But as a dude, until you get rid of the, the upper body fat, the shoulder, until your upper body is shredded and veiny. And it always is, right? You've got this upper body that from the from the rib cage up, you just look like a god. Men's physique. And you take your shirt yeah, off just and go. The men's physique, the board shorts. <laughs> because that's what goes in. But, but, right, but when, yeah, right. But when it, right, wear, wear board shorts. It's easier than training legs. And um, that'll make me some friends. Anyway, so... So yeah, but for men, that's the last to, 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 it'll drop a little bit earlier in the diet, but it won't really start to drop till the end. And then what do you see when it starts to drop? It starts to drop really rapidly because there's nowhere else to pull yeah. fat from, or you lose more muscle. Those are the two options. Either the body is drawing more proportionally more fat from the stubborn areas if it can, or if it can't get fat energy, it will burn more muscle for energy. These are the options available to it. And, um, so so yeah so it's there but you can't do a whole heck of a lot about it until you get lean enough and that's why the stubborn fat protocols are really for men that are 10 12 ish percent body fat women yeah 16 17 18 percent because until then there's really not a lot that can be done now here's what is interesting and i talked about this in the women's book one of the stubborn fat protocols is based around interval training right this gets into deep hormonal stuff and adrenaline and noradrenaline ratios. I do want to get into any of it. But in general, lower intensity aerobic activity doesn't do a great job of mobilizing stubborn fat and high intensity activity does, which is why that interval protocol is there. And studies that have looked at fat loss in women comparing either aerobic activity to either intense weight training or intense like interval training, they do see proportionally more hip and thigh fat being yeah, like you just do aerobic activity it's all upper body aerobic activity is just is shite for for mobilizing lower body fat but if you get him doing some yeah but before we get into the, the actual protocol itself and i know we will get into those because you talk extensively about those in your book i, I want to take it back a little bit and, and kind of yeah. um give my synopsis and, and, t- and correct me if i'm wrong and this is from my own research and obviously reading your books and stuff over the years but mm-hmm. so what most people think is that you just burn body fat but what you really need to do is you need to mobilize or liberate the fatty free acids you need to then transport those fatty free acids through the bloodstream into the cells right. that need to create energy and then yes. they need to be burned which is the final part of the actual process and yeah and then so right. catecholamine yeah, so, release yeah. so like you said adrenaline or adrenaline or epinephrine or epinephrine through a, a deficit which will release those or else through you know high stimulant intake will cause um you know glucagon release which will you know release the fatty acids and we have more uh they, they attach to adrenergic uh, receptors so the alpha and beta receptors um which are different uh, proportions or different percentages right. in certain body parts of our body and specifically in those stubborn areas we have those yep. uh, higher percentage of beta to alpha receptors or a- alpha 2 receptors and and the thing that i couldn't actually understand is what yeah. is the the, f- the physiological reason or the evolutionary reason that we have stubborn body fat or why does those why do those receptors actually inhibit fat loss like why would we oh, have yeah. fat cells that actually stop fat from being burned it just for me it just doesn't make logical sense obviously there's obviously it's more than just a 
an aesthetic reason. Sure. There's obviously some reasons behind that, and I, I couldn't figure out exactly why mm. that actually occurs because people say, well, why do I hold right. uh, body fat in my in my love handles? Sure, right, and 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 also you know there's also sort of the secondary question is why the sexual dimorphism, right? Why is for men, is it typically midsection and women, is it typically lower body? I mean, it's not universally the case, right? There are women with elevated testosterone levels that tend to have a more central fat pattern. One of the things I just find funny because I'm easily amused is as women reach a very high level of body fat, right? Their hips and thighs can only store so much and they tend to get a, a, a they start storing body fat in their, their midsection. But as men get above a certain body fat, they start storing more body fat yeah. in their lower body. And I think thus is the balance of the universe maintained. But that's just one. But th that's more of an issue is that once fat cells reach a point that they can't store more calories, they got to go somewhere else. And the body can make new fat cells. That's a whole separate thing. So, so, But the fact that there is a difference suggests that there is some sort of evolutionary sex-based reason for it. Now, for women, we could probably argue that part of it is sexual attraction, right? There's all that stuff with the waist-to-hip ratio, which is 0.7, according, I think, Devora Sings. I hope I got that right. Her old researcher, 0.8 or something in that range. Like, that, that, it's funny, right? Because men, it's been shown that that is the most attractive waist-to-hip ratio. And men just look at that and go, man, hot or thick or depending, whatever, right? There's just that curviness. And as women gain more central fat and that waist-to-hip ratio goes down, they are typically seen as less attractive. And man, look, I don't want to get into the sociocultural stuff. There's a biology to this. And it's the same thing for men. And I'll trust me, I'll cover both. But in women, more central body fat tends to be associated with poorer fertility and poorer birth outcomes. Right, so this makes perfect sense that men would be showing a general selection for this. Now, we don't know why, right? Our, our, our dumb male brains don't go, huh, that female would appear to have wide hips that will facilitate the birthing process along with a waist-to-hip ratio suggesting optimal immunity. Well, all we yeah. just go is want, hot, uh, like we don't, right? So that, that, that sort of underlying evolutionary pressure just yeah, I think I read it with uh, I, with women with blonde hair as well for something like that. I think it right. just we don't, we, it just signifies more fertility or younger youthfulness and stuff. Yes, and it, for, it's exactly it's fertility and youth, and that's why you know I've seen guys go ah, I, I, women should never cut their hair because we typically associate longer hair with youth. Fertility, the same thing with breast, perkier breast after women breastfeed, their breasts often will like yes, this is all part of that drive, and that's because. Fertility, you know, from 14 or whatever, puberty to early 20s, women have to say yada yada. It's all evolutionary driven. Now, this works in, in reverse, right? Remember a couple of years ago, the whole mm. dad bod thing that everyone lost their ever loving mind over, right? Because there's nothing that pisses off fitness obsessed dudes more than finding out that true, girls do true. not give <laughs> a shit about their abs. Nothing. Gay dude, men. dude Gay the, men, I, got, I got news for you. You know who you're impressing yeah. with that? The other guy, the the dudes in the gym, which is fine. If you want to impress women, by unless they're yeah. in the subculture, they don't give a shit what you bench. They don't give a shit about your abs because they by the time they see your abs, they've already decided, generally speaking, to sleep with you. That is not, like I said, there's a certain age. If you're a Jersey, I'm sure there's in like there's certain subcultures in this country. Generally, younger college, 
whatever, where guys hang out with their and women, uh, abs, like whatever, and they're selecting for physical, whatever. It doesn't matter. And so what's been shown, right, that dad bod, 12 to 15% body fat, thereabouts, that's actually been shown. That's where men's immune system is optimal. Any leaner, your immune system craters. Any fat, so that it also it would probably signals ah he has enough resources to feed himself. He has enough resources to take care of me and a child. He's not body obsessed, so maybe instead of focusing on his guns, he'll pay it. Like there's all these things, so it works in both directions. So that's part of it is simple sexual attraction, but there is also a biological reason for it. So in women, hip and thigh fat, it's very easy. It's for reproduction. There's no question, and, and, and this is how I can state that very matter-of-factly. Well, there's a couple different things. Is A, right after ovulation in the menstrual cycle, which is when she has the potential to get pregnant, that's when calorie storage, specifically in the lower body, increases. Because in case she gets pregnant, her body wants to go, let's make sure we've got enough calories to support pregnancy if it happens. All the hormonal shifts drive hunger, appetite, calorie storage, etc. But more importantly, when women are breastfeeding, like right towards, it's like the third trimester and into breastfeeding, that normally stubborn hip and thigh fat becomes the easiest to mobilize. And you know what? I spent years trying to figure out how this worked because I, my thought was if I can figure out how this works biologically, maybe I can mimic it. And I tried and tried and tried and I finally gave up. I couldn't get anywhere with it. But Clearly, those calories exist specifically to support the tail end of pregnancy and provide calories for breastfeeding, which is fairly energetically costly. So that one's easy. Here's another oddity, and I've never, I, I think I joked about this in the stubborn fat solution that I, I really don't have an answer for. In the U.S., we have something you'll hear referred to as lunch lady arms, and it's something, you'll see this in, in women who carry some body yeah, fat, even besides if they're lean, them. and it's that, that body fat yeah. on the tricep. That is, yeah, okay, so yeah, so here it's, we call them, because that's like, we always had older lunch ladies that served like school lunches and stuff. And yeah, the bat wings. Man, I wondered what, what that was about for years. And the best explanation, and I found this real weird paper, is that after pregnancy, right, women, as they lose their hip and thigh fat, their tricep skin fold gets bigger. And that was really weird to me. Like, why? What is the benefit, biological benefit of this? And I mentioned this. You know what? I mentioned that in my group, and that was the answer the women came up with. Because I think it's more that their entire arms gain. Because nobody, they, nobody ever me measures or they don't measure the bicep skin fold. I bet that's exact. That was the best answer I could. Anybody came up with. I don't know if it's right. It's probably the best I'm ever going to come across. So I'm just going to accept that. So there's. Now, for men, there's a couple different thoughts. Because, A, we've got men, we develop this visceral fat, right, that gut fat. And it's not, you can't see it, and it surrounds the organs, and it's super unhealthy to carry a lot of. But it, it does have a couple of potential advantages. One, it's very quickly mobilized. So I think one of the ideas, right, the whole fight-or-flight thing, right, and this, of course, still imagines human beings as being these Tarzan, Neolithic guys, you know, chasing down monsters or chasing down animals, which is not at all how we hunted. We hunted, we just ran them off of cliffs and stuff. Regardless, the idea is that when men are f uh, faced with a fight or flight situation, they need to mobilize fuel rapidly. And the whole hormonal cascade to fight or flight is geared towards immediate energy production. 
right? If you've ever read yep. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky, and if you haven't, you should. It's one of the best books I've ever read. He talks about that, right? You're on the savanna. You're a zebra. A lion's coming at you. You don't have time to warm up. You get an immediate hormonal response that provides you fuel so you can get the hell out of Dodge. Presumably, that's part of it for men. I think I've also seen it at least hypothesized that visceral fat might make it easier to take a punch. I, I don't swear me to that. I occasionally dream stuff up that I thought I saw in a page. Like, I could see that because, again, if you look at sort of the, the sex differences and, you know, what we dealt with, um, men were hunters and the women were gatherers and men are very much more combative. That's biologically proven. There's all kinds of interesting stuff. Men with beards are seen as more aggressive and that's why that's always been like part of like, you know, go watch 300 and Leonides and like beards are a very aggressive masculine type of, and there's all these things, men, behaviors that men do and some of which women respond to and some of which they don't uh, from a sexual attraction level. Because it is possible for a guy to be too masculine to have such a masculine face that that is parsed as potentially violent, <laughs> right? I'm getting totally off topic, but I always do this, is if you look at like teeny bopper male rock stars, they're always a little bit androgynous. They're always, a, they have very soft faces because to a 15-year-old girl, anything more masculine looks aggressive. And then there's a certain point where more masculine faces more. And then once it gets beyond a certain point, when he looks like, you know, a Neanderthal serial killer, that tends to signal negative. So anyway, but there's all this. So I, I think the best bet I got on gut fat is A, to provide really rapid energy for when a guy has to f uh, fight or flight. Uh, where, uh, and maybe maybe take a punch. I mean, we just had yeah. that. He beat I AJ that, that, the that English guy. Super heavyweight boxing yeah. fight. Where I was going to bring the it up. The chubby, like a, I love that. Like I love a, that stuff. It's like a dad bod thing. <laughs> oh my God. I know. And everyone's like, oh my God, wouldn't he be better if he were buff like a bodybuilder? No, Federer was a chubby little dude and he was an absolute murderer in the MMA ring like that. It, seriously, or Butterball, Butterbean, if you remember him from about a decade ago. Like, man, you can you can punch big old yeah, dude with big old gut fat all day, every day, and you'll never hurt him. Kidney shot can't happen. You got to get through a foot of lard to get to his kidneys, man. Like that's that's a you know that's safe. That's that's a power belly and then some. So that's my best guess. Why it, it you know there's also the in general aspect. You're like why why would it be hard to mobilize body fat and and it isn't it isn't. Yeah, you talked about that in your book. When you're carrying a lot right? of body so fat, it's I, very I, easy I... because all of these. Yeah, like all these adaptations occur, fat cells become very insulin resistant. And what does that mean? It means that insulin not only can't store fat, it can inhibit fat storage. It can't inhibit fat mobilization. When fat cells get insulin resistant, they are trying to go, look, we're too fat. Don't take in more calories. They're trying to push calories away. And that's why you get hyperglycemia, hypertriglyceridemia, which is triglycerides in the, in the bloodstream. They can't go anywhere. Right, and what happens? You take someone, you take a dude at thirty percent body fat, and you start training him. And what happens? The fat melts off, and he gains muscle because basically the fat cells are essentially going, "We've got all these calories. We don't need them. Here, take them. Take them to muscle. Burn them off. Use them to to provide energy to build muscle. Like get." So you see this huge partitioning effect. As you get leaner, a bunch of things happen. You become everything becomes more insulin sensitive, right? So if a fat cell is insulin sensitive responds very well to the hormone insulin, yeah, it can store so, fat more easily and mobilize fat with greater difficulty. 
leptin is going down, metabolic rate is going down, all these hormonal shifts are occurring. You, you have like, what happens when you get really lean? Your blood pressure is tanked. Your baseline catecholamine levels are very low. You can't get them up as hard during exercise. And that's to prevent starvation at the low end. And in the middle end, it, when, you're, when you're carrying a lot of fat, it's super easy. In the middle, it's not that hard either. I mean, there's other things going on when you're carrying a lot of body fat that can be a problem. In the middle, it's easy. To take a dude from 25% body fat to 15, it's nothing. It doesn't take any effort. Yeah, little training, little cardio, little diet attention. Once you get to 12 to 15, yeah, and you see people, that's when that's When, when people are starts. dieting down and they get to a certain because body fat, the, it's the lowest back. body fat they've ever been at. When they come back up and start gaining weight again, often they'll they'll compare two photos of themselves at the same weight, but on the way back up, they just typically look worse because because of that, like you said, the insulin sensitivity of your body is just more likely to store fat from a survival mechanism. So, and, and when you say everything gets more yeah. insulin sensitive, yeah. as you get leaner, I, I would say it's yep. caveat except for muscle because that's probably already quite insulin sensitive, um, and true. It, it can become very – yeah, I'm, I'm really – sorry, I should have been more specific. I'm really talking about fat cells specifically is as you get very fat – because everyone's like, oh, insulin resistance causes fat gain. Actually, no, fat gain causes insulin resistance. It's a little more complicated than that because t like take someone who's overeating, right? Their muscles get full of carbs and, and fat, intermuscular triglycerides. The muscle goes no more and becomes insulin resistant. Next is the liver. Maybe the liver's first. doesn't matter. And then the liver's like, okay, we're not going to stop producing glucose. And you start, and then fat starts filling up and eventually gets to the point it goes, no more. And other things can happen. The body can make new fat cells. Actually, if the body can't make new fat cells, that causes more health problems. Yeah, so... That's a whole separate topic that's not worth getting into. So there's, you kind of get this progressive insulin resistance. And now it would be great, right? The ideal situation for fat loss would be highly insulin-sensitive muscles... So they are taking up calories really well. Highly yeah, insulin-resistant fat cells, so they're pushing calories away. Yeah, so well, people think, uh, it's actually the name of your website, coincidentally, exactly body re recomposition. People, what they think is, well, I'm going to get really lean, and then I'm going to mm -hmm. recomp. But the best time to recomp is actually when you're at a higher body fat percentage. So people don't really like to think that. They want to, well, I'll get lean, Correct. and then I'll start building Very muscles. So. Like, well, you can... Um, well, and, and, and where that comes from, there was some data early on that people who are naturally lean, who start gaining weight, gain more muscle. So the thought was like, oh, if I get lean first, but it doesn't work that way. When you are lean, your body is primed for fat regain, right? It's like this idea that post-contest, what do you hear? Oh, man, you get this huge anabolic rebound. Right, you gain back all the glycogen and water and intermuscular triglycerides that you lost. You gain like 10 pounds of quote-unquote yeah. in the first week. And then you get fat again. All you're doing is maybe regain. And actually, Eric Trexler, who's doing some good research on this, he did a, he did a paper on this. He studied physique athletes immediately after the show, a week later and six weeks, or like a week, three, and six after. And in the first week, they gained almost purely lean body mass, but it was water and glycogen, right? You're coming out of this super dehydrated state. And from weeks three to or one to six, it was about 98% fat gain. You are not primed to gain muscle when you're coming out of 5% body fat as a dude. You're and can, can one actually, like so I've heard this um, mentioned a, num a number of times by some physique coaches, uh, namely Lane Norton, but he says that, you know, when you get extremely lean and you start to overeat heavily, you can actually gain more adipocytes, you can gain more body fat cells, so that increases your chance 
to gain more fat as as you get heavier because you have now more fat cells that can essentially fill up like balloons is that true or um i i mean realize nobody really addresses people that are super lean but it's it's really kind of what i most of the research says the opposite right is that okay so a you can create new fat cells that's true but what it happens when your current fat cells get big beyond a certain point they release all these growth factors that recruit what are called pre-adipocytes, like baby fat cells. So I have a paper I cited in the women's book, and they took women at, I want to say, 30% body fat and overfed them. Well, men and women. The men filled up their fat cells. The women made more in their, in their midsection. The women made more fat cells in the lower body, but that's because the fat cells were already full. Coming out of a diet when your fat cells are basically empty... Either there's, I don't see any biological reason that it would make new fat cells. Honestly, I think he was trying to come up with a justification for reverse dieting, which frankly is nonsense. And I don't really want to go down that pathway right now, but nothing I've, I'll just say nothing I've seen. And I don't think in a physiological, there would be no reason for the body to make new fat cells when it's got plenty of fat cells available to fill up. So I don't see, I don't see personally how that would occur. If he's got data to the contrary, I'd love to see it. Okay, but so I you say don't that see why it would work that way. Yeah, that's so the, that's you the say gentle, that's the gentlest sorry, go ahead, I go can ahead. give. I was gonna say that because there's also <laughs> go on. Oh, you go, you go ahead. Well, I was gonna say. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say that. All right, I'll shut it up. It kind of seems makes go. sense that you don't really need to address these body fat, uh, stubborn body fat concerns until you actually can visibly see them, or until you kind of maximize with the easiest fat loss, which is you know the upper body and the men and at the shoulders and certain parts of the abdominals yes but then what if you'd actually tried some of the protocols Agreed. as you're leaning out even if you're at that higher body fat percentage is that just kind of uh, you know pissing in the wind per se where like you, yeah it is yes i i think like i said there's a couple weird studies where even in women carrying more body fat if they do some high intensity work they will lose I mean, we're not talking major amounts, right? We're talking like if they do aerobic activity, they may lose three to four percent of their body fat in their upper body, and if they throw in some intervals or some weight training, and their and their lower body fat won't shrink at all, and it'll shrink by a couple percent. Like we're talking about very, very, very relative amounts here. But by and large, the body, like so many things, it's going to follow kind of the easiest path. If you can very readily, rapidly mobilize fat out of your upper body and your visceral fat or your, your abdominal fat, it just, there's no real reason, no matter what you do, that it's going to pull very heavily on the stubborn fat. It'd be great. Like I know, you know, there's some folks trying to play around with like topical stuff and, and you know, we'll get to the Yohimbean thing, which is kind of where some of this comes from. I just don't. There just doesn't seem like any real reason for the body to do that to me. Yeah. It's always going to follow the path of least resistance. And if you can get fat cells out of visceral fat easily, I don't see any yeah. reason why it would go to the, you know, it'd be great because it sucks, right? Like when you're a dude, because some, you yes. lean from some inside guys, out and the top down. Some guys don't want to get super, super shredded, down, but they don't want to have sucks. like the stubborn fat because some people just hold it quite, like mm. me, I hold a bit of stubborn fat in my legs, but like that's fine if I'm not competing. But some people that they just want to get beach lean and unfortunately, yeah. they just, you know, they still have those love handles, even though they're quite lean up top, yep. it just it just doesn't look that good subjectively to them. So, I mean, let's say you get to, let's say you get a 10%, yep. right? So you, you've dieted down through just calorie deficit and just consistent training and diet 
and you do want to lose uh, this stubborn body fat, why couldn't you just consistently do a, you know continue a calorie deficit? Why would why wouldn't that work, or why is that superior or inferior to? Well, yes, and it and to a first approximation, it probably like because I, I have I've argued with a couple of people, including Eric Helms, because he's like I haven't really seen stubborn fat, and there's a couple other people, and when I look at what they're doing through one means or another, there is there are elements of the stubborn fat protocols in there. And I think that it's like, it's because modern contest prep, and I'm not saying through any design of its own, but the way people are approaching contest prep ends up approximating a lot of what I've talked about. When I was writing, because I realized I wrote that book in, in 2006, and at the time, you know, people were still using very standard contest prep methods. And that's really changed in the last decade. So, so I will say this. Women have it way harder than men, right? For men, a lot of it, it's really just a matter of being patient, quite honestly. Like, it's just, and, and it sucks. To, like, to your point, guys are like, uh, I don't want to get super lean, but I want to have a six pack. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you can only do one or the other. <laughs> It, I wish it were, unless you want to get a power belly with all kinds of, you know, do tons of ab work, it makes them pop out a little bit sooner. But the reality is that for a dude to get a really good six pack, it's probably sub 10%. And that takes a lot of work. And it sucks. But if they just kind of stick with it, the, the, lower ab, the lower ab fat will go away. But for women, that, for women using traditional diet yeah. approaches, that doesn't work. And I want, and, I, and I'm clarifying that because, like I said, a lot of the current contest prep ideas or what's being done end up having elements of what I wrote about, whether they know it or not. Like, so for example, there is one uh, keto zealot in the industry. I'm not going to name him to try to show a little we, bit. Of, we don't have class on this. A little we, bit of class. We name He's like, There's no such thing as. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's Menno Henselman, and he's just like, I want to debate Lyle about stubborn fat. It doesn't exist. And I'm like, okay, dude, you put everybody on ketogenic diets. What's the first protocol on my stubborn fat book? A low-carb diet. Dude, you just proved yourself wrong. You are using one of my stubborn protocols. Done. That was it. You love doing interval training. Intervals plus cardio is stubborn fat protocol number three. You don't think there's stubborn fat because you're already using my protocols without realizing it. Boom, we're done. And that's what's happening, right? Modern, if you look at modern contest prep approaches, in men and women, right? Men and women get to the end, they're dieting over very long. Like, so back in the day, right? Back in the 70s and 80s, or in the 80s especially, people died on high carb, low fat, especially if they were on drugs. Now, and what would happen is women would get ripped upper bodies and still have fat, fat legs. Dan Duchesne used to write about that. It was like there were two different bodies stapled together. Because And they were doing nothing but low-intensity cardio. Well, they were doing nothing in that book, right? They were on high carbs, which is going to very much limit lower fat mobilization. They were not doing any sort of, I mean, they were lifting weights, but in various and sundry ways. But now, what are, like, typically you're seeing higher protein intakes. By the time lighter men and women get to naturals especially get to the end of contest prep they're on such low calories that their carbs are what 80 90 120 grams a day maybe more if they're men but smaller women are eating like 100 grams of carbs per day yeah so i Boom, mean that's stubborn fat protocol number one 
there's also such a focus. Sorry, let me. There's always such a fo also such a focus on high intensity interval training. Well, that's stubborn fat protocol number three. It's just become de facto included. So yeah, because like Eric told me, he's like, right, we tried Yohimbine. I didn't see any benefit from it. And right, if you've already got elements of those yeah. other protocols built in, you probably won't. But it was based around the fact that you're not doing these certain other because that's and we'll get to the protocols themselves. And I'm like, look, if you don't want to do a ketogenic low carb diet, which gets an, an, an automatic mobilization because you don't like them, you don't feel good on them. The next step is Yohimbi. And if you don't want to do that, and in some places in Australia, which is might as well be a third world country, they can't get Yohimbi. They can't get anything good over there. Australia is terrible and everything wants to murder you, but they can't get any of the good supplements over there. Right. It's like, oh, but we're doing a lot of high-intensity interval training. Boom, right. So you don't need it because you're so already what are the doing one of the protocols on them. built in. Okay. So I kind of, so I kind of, so I had four different ones. And using both diet, supplements, and then training modifications. So one of the interesting things is four days of exposure to, they call it a high-fat diet, but it's really a low-carb diet does something that automatically inhibits the alpha receptors, right? So remember, those alpha receptors are the brakes. When they're activated, they inhibit fat mobilization from stubborn fat. So if you inhibit an inhibitor, and this gets, I know this gets a little convoluted, right? If I activate alpha receptors, it's like putting my foot on a brake. If I inhibit yeah. the alpha receptor, it's like taking my foot off the brake. So, you so, so, but... So, so a hot four days of a low, very low carb diet will automatically have that effect. So protocol one was simply use a low carb diet for four to five days while doing low intensity cardio, right? Because like you said, let's go back to something you talked about, the steps of fat burning, quote unquote, without mobilization, nothing happens unless you get surgery, right? Lipo or cool sculpting or something. Then it has to get transported in the bloodstream. Then it has to reach a tissue such as heart, organ, or muscle where it can be burnt, where it can be used for energy. When it's used for energy, what happens is it is combined with oxygen and broken down for energy, and then you release water and carbon dioxide. That is what quote-unquote fat burning means. It is like when you put a log in the fireplace, it reacts with oxygen and it burns. You are reacting a fatty acid molecule with oxygen to generate ATP with carbon dioxide as a waste product. That is what burning fat is, but that's the first two steps. You can't do that. So taking the break off the alpha receptor with a high fat, with a low carb diet for four days allows that stubborn fat to be released into the bloodstream. Now it turns out there's alpha and beta receptors in, in uh, blood vessels that do the exact same thing. Beta receptors cause vasodilation, so there's higher blood flow. Alpha receptor activation causes vasoconstriction, so there's less blood flow. So it's a double benefit. The low-carb diet inhibits the alpha receptor in the fat cell and presumably the alpha receptor in the, blood, in the blood vessels. So you get better mobilization, you get better blood flow, and then if you do cardio... What's the physiological the deficit, reason behind for energy. Uh, a, a lower-carb diet be working better? If calories are matched, right? Why, why would the lower-carb work better? And, and not, like you said, lower-carb doesn't mean that you jack up your fat, but why does lower-carb work better for... Uh, inhibiting those uh, alpha, alpha receptors or the you know, inhibiting the inhibitors. No clue. 
Genuinely, I don't. I, I remember the study, and I can send it to you if you really want to read it. And they actually did two different things. And it, it might actually be a fatty acid thing in this case. Because first they took fat cells, and they, like, put them in a soup of fatty acids, like the what's called an in vitro study. And they saw this inhibition, and then they put humans on four days of a low carb. And usually if you're cutting carbs, fat goes up somewhat. And for whatever reason, it, it just did. To low I carb. have absolutely no to idea. low carb, that's the first step. It just did. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it could be, you know, by chronically lowering insulin. It could be elevated. I, I, I just truly, genuinely yeah, don't know. It works. Um, other than the observation was made that it did. So, so that would be one approach. Now, not everybody likes very low-carb diets. Some people feel miserable, like they got hit by a truck on them. Exercise performance can suffer. So, so that may not always be an option. Right. And one thing I tried to do, right, so I've got like my ultimate diet, too, which has elements of they, they overlap to some degree. They're both for very lean athletes. They're both sort of geared in it. The, the UD2 ended up having, excuse me, aspects of stubborn, stubborn fat, even though that came 10 years later. It, it's a very specific diet with a very specific training structure. Not everybody likes that. Not everybody can do it, wants to do it. It's a pain in the ass to do, like to, to a degree. When I wrote the stubborn fat protocols, I wanted to make it. Look, you can integrate this with what your current without changing your entire training structure without to within limits. That's why I tried to offer these different protocols. I'm like, if you're willing to go low carb, that's all you need. Low carb plus steady state aerobics. That's it. That will do that will do like I said modern contest prep. Just the nature of how it's being done ended up doing that. That's why they don't seem to think there's stubborn fat. There is stubborn fat. Modern contest prep just sort but just, of happens you're just to getting address calories it. so low by, by default, by carbs crap. become low. Yeah, because you have to. If you're natural, man, you're on those quote-unquote poverty calories at the end of your prep, man. If, you, if you're eating a gram and a half, you're eating three grams per kilo of lean body mass of protein and any dietary fat, there's just not room for carbs. Right? If you're a bigger dude, you might get 120, 150 grams. Women, I looked at a bunch of case studies in, in the women's book on physique athletes. Their average carb intake is like 80 to 100 grams a day because that's all they've got room for. When you're on 1,400 calories and you're eating 40% protein, you just don't have room for them. So they end up in that state. I don't want to say accidentally, but without realizing that's what they're doing. So that's protocol one, right? It's great. If that's if you can do keto, that's all you got to do. And and finally, if you look back 10 or 15 years, Duchesne wrote about this. He's like, for some reason, low-carb diets help mobilize stubborn lower body fat. He didn't know why. He just noticed it was true. And others have written about that, too. It made it more whatever. Just it made it easier to mobilize. Now we know I, I found the mechanism or kind of I found what, you know, the study that showed it was true. Don't know the mechanism, but it works. Now, if you can't do that, where does that leave you? So we have the same issue. We still need to inhibit the brain. We have to inhibit the alpha receptors to help mobilize that fat. Enter oral yohimbine, right? Yohimbine, well, uh, yohimbine is a drug, actually, yohimbine hydrochloride. There is also a yohimbi bark, a supplement. Don't ever use it. It's terrible. The side effects are miserable. The other compounds in there, you get I've used cold it sweats and, and was, hot sweats I, I at the think same I, I time. Used, I bought it when I was in uh, now, the U.S. like 2013. It's awful. And uh, I got it in GNC because they didn't sell UMB in HCI, yeah. And I took it. And I remember sitting, I was in college at the time, yep. and I was getting severe panic attacks. It was awful. absolutely horrible. 
Yes, and that is, and I'll come back to that. That is an important thing. So, yohimbine was originally used to treat erectile dysfunction. Way back in the day. I don't know how they figured out this worked, but it did. Now, this has led to, you will see, and women will especially see this, you'll see warnings on the bottles, say women shouldn't take this. Because when something affects erectile function, the assumption was that it was due to testosterone. Right? Testosterone makes your, makes your penis hard. But it's not how it works. There are the same, there are blood vessels in the penis. There are the same receptors, the same alpha and beta receptors in the penis. Yohimbine is working exactly, Yohimbine was causing vasodilation of the blood vessels in the penis. That's how it worked. Right, and we know now like Viagra and I think Cialis, they are doing the same thing through nitric oxide. They are increasing blood flow. It's got nothing to do with anything hormonal. So Yohimbine as an alpha-2 antagonist, meaning that it binds to the alpha-2 receptor and, and inhibits it, right? It, it takes the foot off the brake, has the exact same effect. It makes it easier to mobilize. And it does this especially, well, actually it does this exclusively in the presence of low insulin, right? So if you look at the studies on this, about half say it works and half don't. And the ones that don't had the meat first. Insulin wins. Insulin always wins the battle over fat mobilization. So if you eat first, yohimbine can't work. So you take yohimbine with caffeine, because caffeine makes everything work better in the world, an hour before your cardio, and it can be done before steady state. You are now getting the same inhibition as you would with a low, with a low carb diet. You go, so mobilization, blood flow, burn it off with activity, boom. Now there's a side effect. There's several side effects. It is important, right? There are alpha receptors in the brain. And alpha-2 receptors in the brain are, again, same thing, right? Remember I talked about adrenaline and noradrenaline? Yep. Norepinephrine is released from nerve terminals. Well, in the brain, the release of noradrenaline from nerve terminals can, be, can drive anxiety. So by taking, you know, they use high-dose yohimbine to trigger panic attacks. And anyone who is even remotely prone to panic attacks or anxiety attacks should not use this, period. Because any benefit it has will be overwhelmed by the fact that it's, mm -hmm. hard, to do, it's hard to do cardio when you're in the middle of a panic attack. Right? So, and that's the issue with Yohimbine is it works all over the body, right? It will raise your heart rate. It will raise your blood pressure. It has effects at the muscle. It is not local to the body fat which would be ideal. People tried to make topical creams for the longest time. I remain utterly unconvinced that they work. Everybody that used them was like, my heart rate, blood pressure go up. Right, it's just entering the systemic circulation. So yohimbine has the same effect. Now, if you take yohimbine and go to the gym, this works for women and men too. Well, it will increase blood flow to your nether regions, right? I know you've experienced this. You've been doing your cardio on yohimbine, and seeing a particularly hot individual in the gym, and all of a sudden you have an erection. I used to get it from ab work for some reason. My theory is that it was physically pumping blood down there. I don't know what it was, but um, women may frequently get, <laughs> shall we say, a tingle doing cardio, which they may or may not like, depending on 
Like there's actually some real, there's a lot of research, exercise induced orgasm. Some women will orgasm during exercise, especially during uh, like Roman chair, ab work especially. Not all of them, but some women will actually orgasm during exercise, which <laughs> good or bad, depending on your perspective. I'm not one to judge. Whatever, if you like it. Some women find it distracting during exercise and others apparently not so much. Um, Yohimbine will cause that, just be aware. It won't, it, like it won't make you horny, right? It's not an aphrodisiac. But if you happen to get aroused, you will get an effect. So just be forewarned. <laughs> if you're a dude, you better wear some Under Armour, some tights or something. Don't don't go raw dog and loose shorts. It can get very ugly. I um, think I'm in that, until you I'm, get so lean that nothing works. Right in now, which so, case, yeah. it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> uh, one of my f- yeah that oh well if you're a week out from show yeah that's that's always been the irony I, I made a joke about this and I was like yep then they don't want women men yeah. want to get then, eight percent to get women and now their dick won't work it's fan well yeah and your sex drive goes to zero anyway like even if you you know your body cares about survival you don't care about getting laid so yeah that's that's the the irony of the world um so yeah so you him being plus car- and and I mean you could technically use yo him being with a low carb diet but it's not. It will probably have a little bit of additional effect, but maybe not. Like UD2, which is four days of low carbs. Like I was like, okay, A, do steady state cardio on Wednesday, Thursday to mobile. And if you want to throw in a little Yohimbi and caffeine, you can. Uh, another thing, don't combine Yohimbi with ephedrine if you use ephedrine. Because that is having a double whammy, right? Ephedrine activates beta receptors. It pushes the accelerator. Yohimbi takes the foot off the brake. If you want to feel like you're having a heart attack, either, yeah. take both. They should be taken. They should be taken four hours of. They should be taken four hours apart. Like ideally, yohimbine is before morning fasted cardio. And now we get into the. But I thought morning fasted cardio. Blah blah blah. Yeah, whatever. Not getting into it. When you study a male at seven percent, you let me know. Um, I, I will. It 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 matters at that level. No matter what people want to think, and. And yohimbine has to be used fasted, period. If you're going to use it, it has to be fasted. The end. So take your yohimbine with caffeine an hour before. Go do your whatever slog on the treadmill or whatever you do. If you're going to use ephedrine, like say you take yohimbine at 8 a.m., no earlier than 12 p.m. To, to control appetite. Do not take them together. Bad things tend to happen. Um, like I said, yeah, on anxiety you, you attacks, don't use it all. Use the different cause to be taking both That's of those. why I had multiples. Yeah, yeah. Ask well, me about I, it I could, podcast, you know, if if Edwin is banned, well, yeah. There's, I mean, there's that too, and I think in some federations, you know, him being is banned. So for some people, it's kind of a moot point. Um, but um, yeah, just be like I said, be be forewarned. Oh, yo, himbine can also, with long term use, and I do not know the mechanism of this, can cause a little bit of water retention. So you can get this weirdness where it, it's kind of masking your fat loss for a little bit when you're on it. I don't know if you've experienced that, and then you need to go off it like a week or so before a, a, if you're doing a physique show. And I mean, honestly, if you're not lean enough a week out, maybe five days out, you're not going to make it anyway. So you might as well drop it. But you free like you will. 
I don't know if you've experienced the squishy fat phenomenon. They're stubborn fat. Like it, it, it feels really hard, right? You push it and you're like, man, that's just rock solid. And when it starts to get depleted, it gets this weird kind of marbled squishy feeling because the fat cells are emptying out. So you like might not look better immediately, but you're getting that. You're like, okay, good stuff is happening. And then you drop it for a couple of days. Yeah, it's probably to do with like, you know, just, cortisol like, release, I'd say, because um, you're taking a stimulant, right? Yeah, yeah, that one, I don't know what's what's going on, why Yohimbine causes it, but just be forewarned mm. is that towards the end of a show, it may make you feel like you're you're off schedule, um, but drop it for a couple of days so it clears. It, it's also, for, and I don't know, again, how it builds up in the system, so it's one of those things that kind of works better over time um, when you take it sort of semi-chronically. So uh, is there is there a period that you should, uh, your, you know, cycle Yohimbine, should you do two weeks on, one week off, and just take, keep taking it? Nah. Yep, just keep taking it consistently until you're ready to come off for your show. Like, unless you need to drop it so you can, you know, drop water and see where you're at. But, yeah, there's no reason to cycle it. Like, you don't need to take it on non-training days if you're not doing cardio in the morning. Like, you don't need to bother with it. Um, so, step yeah, one is low-carb. Step two is Yohimbean. Or what's step three? Clear. Right, which which can, can be used with or without low-carb, like, depending. Um... Okay, so step three is where I got into using more exercise modulation, right? Because not everyone wants to do keto. Not everybody wants to take Yohimbine or they can't take it or they don't have access to it. So I needed to come up with, and, and I actually wrote about the, the Stubborn Protocol 1, oh God, years before I wrote this book. And it got ripped off by any number of people, almost none of whom gave me credit. Uh, it got put into a very popular book, The New Rules of Weight of Lifting by uh, Cosgrove and what's his name, and they didn't give me credit because... Alan seemed to enjoy stealing from people, but uh, I'm off topic. Anyway, so what it was, right, it, it got into this idea that different, like I said, this gets, you can really get into the weeds with this. You get different hormonal responses to different exercise intensities, right? At low steady state, insulin goes down, catecholamines, you know, adrenaline goes up a little bit, but you don't get a big noradrenaline response. You don't get it, and you don't get as big of an adrenaline response. As you ramp up your intensity, you get more and more and more, and there's this threshold, and it's right about the maximum steady state level, right? So there's that intensity that if you wanted to suffer, you could stay at for an hour, right? Endurance athletes train there. Uh, physique athletes should not train there, by and large. They should either be low intensity or, or interval training. Once you go above that and get into intervals, you get this staggering hormonal response, right? Catechol, like adrenaline and noradrenaline, both go way up. And remember, not a lot of blood flow to stubborn fat. So by releasing noradrenaline, norepinephrine from the nerve terminals, you get a localized hormonal response, a localized catecholamine response. So the protocol was to warm up, do like 10 minutes of intervals, right? Like one minute on, one minute off, something like that. Like it doesn't need to be exhaustive. <clears throat> now, what that'll do is cause this enormous adrenaline, noradrenaline response, but it will also raise lactate levels right lactate is part of the burning someone's going to listen to this and go it's not actually lactic acid it's lactate and protons and, and hydrogen ions i know i'm very well aware of this i'm trying to keep it simple because i don't want to get into biochemistry so spare me the pedantry whatever lactate blocks fatty acid release from fat cells this is why during very high intensity activity you can't burn a lot of fat for fuel 
right? As intensity goes up, you don't mobilize fat as well. So the protocol then has the interval, like warm up intervals. Then you take five minutes to do nothing because a study I found forever ago out of UT Austin, after high intensity aerobic activity, if you wait five minutes, you see this big spike in free fatty acids because they've been, they've been broken down within the fat cell, but until the lactate levels go down, they don't get released. So all of a sudden, five minutes later, boom, fatty acids show up in the bloodstream at a higher level than they would otherwise. Now you do 30 to 40 minutes of steady state cardio to burn that fat, those fatty acids off, right? Mobilization, transport, oxidation. If you don't burn them off, they'll go right back into the fat cells and get stored again. So you use an interval protocol, take a five minute break, you're gonna drink water, I mean, if you wanted to, you know, walk for five minutes, low intensity recovery, that's fine too. Just take a five minute break, go do a low intensity aerobic modality, walk on the treadmill, EFX, I don't care, uh, to now oxidize and burn off those mobilized fatty acids. So that was protocol, the stubborn fat protocol 1.0. I mean, it's protocol three in the book, but I originally called it the, the, the SFP 1.0. So... Now, that has, that has its own set of issues. Well, let me come back. Let me do talk about the second protocol, and then I'll come back to issues with this protocol. Because like I said, we've got, we've got to balance some pros and cons of each no, of these. No, I, I guess you're going to address it. But I, oh, I any questions on that? The, you know, the high-intensity training with your Himbean obviously can have negative effects, right? Yeah, for that, you got to be like, that's a, that's a timing thing, right? Like ideally under those conditions, you want to like try to time the Yohimbine so that it's, because it takes about an hour to have a peak effect. So you want it to peak when you start the low intensity cardio, right? So let's say you're going to start your cardio at 8 a.m. You're going to warm up for five minutes. You're going to do 10 minutes of intervals. You're going to rest for five minutes. So that's 20 minutes. You ideally want your Yohimbean to peak at 8.20 in the morning. You should take it at 7.20. Because if you take it at 7, <laughs> it will be in your bloodstream when you do the intervals, and you will want to die. Like, and I'm not, you won't die, probably. You will feel like your, your heart rate and blood pressure will go up so high, you will just feel horrible. Um, I'd also note that after the, like, a lot of people use, you know, heart rate on the treadmill or, the, or whatever for their cardio, it will be about 10 beats higher than normal because of the interval. The hormonal response, the interval training will jack up your heart rate into the, so you have to kind of adjust for that. So like just walk at your, whatever, do your normal and don't use heart rate as a, as a metric. Like if you normally do your steady state cardio on level eight of the EFX or three and a half miles an hour, whatever it is, just stay with that. Don't worry about your heart rate because it will be artificially elevated. So that's protocol one. And you can eat after it. Originally, I was like, don't eat for an hour, but it doesn't really matter. Um, can, I, can I have that? Thank you. Um, all right, so Stubborn Fat Protocol 2.0 was just an extension of this. So everything is the same through the beginning, right? And you could do your warm-up. You do your interval training. You, oh, I'd also mention, if you want, like you want to avoid that whole lactate thing, you could do shorter intervals, right? If you want to do 15 seconds of like damn near sprint work, with a 45 second break, same hormonal response without all the lactate buildup. That's another option, especially for protocol two, but you can do that on protocol one. You could also conceivably do like kettlebell swings or complexes, or pretty much you just need to do high intensity intermittent yeah. work that will jack up those hormones. All right, so stubborn fat protocol two, warm up, 
I'd probably say generally do some shorter intervals, 15 seconds on, 45 seconds off. If you're going to do that, don't run. Do not do not run sprints as a physique athlete. You will get hurt. Ride the bike. Do the FX. Do the rowing machine. Do a ski machine. Do any. Do not sprint unless you want to pull a hamstring because you're not skilled enough to do it unless you did hmm. track as a kid. Just don't. It will end badly. Uh, or you'll end up with a strained hip flexor. And two people that do it, Eric Helms will tell you the same thing. Just don't. Pick a safe cardio modality. So you do that, five-minute break, do your cardio, 30 or 40 minutes. Now you're going to finish with long intervals. So you're going to do like 10 minutes of one minute on, one minute off, right? So you did like 15 seconds before, and then you're going to do like longer one minute on, one minute off afterwards. And this is to get whatever small, like not only will it burn off more, more of what's in the bloodstream, but it will generate whatever small afterburn, that calorie expenditure you get post-activity. It's not huge, honestly, you know, but it will get a little bit more of an effect. And when you're lean, right, you're, the ideal is like you're like you've, mobilized, you've done all this work to mobilize these <clears throat> stubborn fat molecules. You want to burn as many of them off as you can during that workout. So this, the, the short intervals mobilize, the low-intensity aerobic activity oxidizes, the long intervals will generate an afterburn. And why, why the, sh- why the slightly longer intervals at the end rather than doing you know, higher, higher intensity or shorter intervals again? You get uh, a lot of the whole afterburn effect is related to, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, basically the metabolic uh, disruption of the system. Like short intervals don't tend to cause quite as much of like a metabolic disruption or hormonal, like they, they generate a very high hormonal effect, but like you don't get the same glycogen depletion, you don't get the same lactate production, you don't get the same kind of overall perturbation of the system. So you'll tend to get a more of a afterburn effect with longer intervals yeah. afterwards than keeping them shorter. There's also, if you deplete glycogen more, you also, that, that enhances fat burning in the muscle cell. That's something I've written about for quite some time. So, so that's why it's just to generate more of a metabolic yeah. disturbance. And, and then I guess what, so what's the, what would be the final step of that? So we said four steps. You have your. Oh, no, that's it. No, that's it. So step, you know, so, per, oh, uh, the four steps, it's warm up, short intervals, five minute break. 40 minutes of low intensity cardio, actually it's five steps and then the long intervals and then and, go yeah. be exhausted and curse my name. Cause it's a really hard workout. Like it's, it's, it's tough when you're on low energy. That's, and that, and that's kind of like the nuclear option. Like I ideally, you know, if you can get it done with lower intensity options, that will leave you a lot more recovery in the tank. And that's something I, I very much want to talk about in terms of t- integrating this yeah so i guess to, 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 to sum up and to wrap program. up everything of the protocols one would be the yohimbian dosage how much yohimbian need to take the second yeah the second question would be i'll just ask questions first oh yeah the second question would uh, be point. then yeah i suppose how often would you do this and then that third question will be coming like you know the recovery cost that will come back into it how often would you do this and then that third question will come like you know the recovery cost that will come back into it. Yeah. Okay. Give me one second. <clears throat> All right. Question one's easy. The optimal dose of yohimbine is 0.2 milligrams per kilo. 
So if you are a 100 kilogram male, it's 20 milligrams. If you are a 50 kilogram female, it's 10 milligrams. Uh, most, well, yohimbine hydrochloride, which is what I recommend if you can get it. Don't use, don't use the herbal bark. It really is truly terrible. Um, comes in two and a half milligram pills. At least it does in the U.S. So, you know, your dosing options, you know, two and a half, five, seven and a half, ten, twelve. Like, get as close as you can. Like, if you end up needing 18 milligrams because you're 90 kilos, whatever. Go ahead and take 20. Or, you know, either take 17.5 or take 20. It's You're not going to die because you're off by that tiny, tiny, tiny amount. However, start with half that. If you've never used it before, start with half of that to assess your tolerance. Because like I said, the, the, the response to it can be... Some people feel great on it. Some people love it. And other people absolutely feel terrible on it. Start with half a dose for a couple of, couple of days. Assess tolerance. If you feel terrible, don't use it. It's not required. It's helpful. And if it's not for you, don't use it. Because there are, there are drawbacks, right? I talked about them. Heart rate, blood pressure, water retention, anxiety. If it's not for you, don't use it. That's why I have four protocols in that book. So that's number one. That's the easy one. All right, frequency. And this ties into recovery cost, right? Now, one of, I, I was very vocal when the whole interval thing got super, super, super popular. Because while they're useful, they are very, they're much harder to recover from, right? A, they were never really shown to be that much more effective than steady state. But what I saw people doing was, all right, I'm lifting five times a week. I'm training legs twice a week. And I'm doing intervals five times a week. Huh, why are my legs tired? Well, gee, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine, right? And if you look at, at performance athletes, they typically do intervals twice a week tops. Swimming is different. If you're looking at cyclists, runners, most they do intervals twice a week tops under eating sufficient calories without weight training. Don't tell me a physique dieter on low calories lifting yeah, weights guess. intensely can do more than that. Just it's it was the whole thing was ridiculous, right? Because what people did, they were like, okay, this study shows that intervals are better than steady state. This other study shows that low carb is better than high carb. This third study shows that complexes are better than this. Let's make people do all three. Yeah, yeah. No, you cannot do. That's not how this works. And it burned. It destroyed people. It absolutely destroyed them. And so, and my whole point was like, look, interval training is great. It's time, but you can't do it every day. Now, if you're a physique dieter or even a general dieter, you may, be, you may want to do something, I'll call it metabolic conditioning, almost daily, right? Especially if you want to keep calories higher, right? You're a week out. At the last couple of weeks of your prep, I'm sure you were on such low calories, even adding 100 calories of cardio is, you know, another couple of bites of food. Smaller women always end up having to do cardio almost daily because they're metabolic, they're just, you can only reduce your food intake so low. So if you if interval training is high intensity, you can't do that every day. And if you're going to do a daily activity, what do you do on the other days? Well, duh-duh, you do low-intensity cardio. Guys got contests ready with that for decades. Do not tell me it makes you fatter, which was the dumbest claim ever. Do not tell me it doesn't work because it did for decades. And you can do 60 uh -huh. minutes on the treadmill every day and never get tired. And I can do an interval workout on a Monday and be wiped out. Until I was. I was a performance athlete for two decades. I've done more interval workouts than I care to name. I hated every single one of them. They're horrible. 
They're hard to recover from. And I did power reader me power meter readings. I burn more calories in 60 minutes of steady state than yeah. I do with a short with a 20 minute interval workout. And I can do the steady state every day. So which is better for fat loss? However, so they do take a recovery cost. In general, okay, so the low intensity protocols you can do daily, right? Low carb diet, you can do morning cardio every day. Golden is all you need to do. Yo Himbean plus low intensity yeah. cardio, you can do that every day. When you get into the interval protocols, you cannot do those every day. People have tried. Yeah, I think that the, what people don't realize is that with that recovery cost means that you're not probably going to be able to train legs as hard or less load on the bar. And in a calorie deficit, that's going to lead to muscle loss. So it's not necessarily that the high intensity Correct. will lead to muscle loss. But if you can't lift as much and you're in a deficit, Correct. the chances are you're going to lose some muscle. Correct. Right, because there are actually there are two. There are really two issues there, and I'll try to address them both. So the stubborn fat protocol 1.0, I would say the, the the first interval protocol, once a week, twice a week tops. That's the most any human being will be able to use it. Unless like, if they're okay, I'll I'll amend that. I'll talk about scheduling. But for most people, twice a week is plenty. Like I said, if athletes who are not lifting and eating enough can only do it twice a week, you can't do it more than that. Mm. I just don't care who you are. On low cat, you cannot do it. You will not recover. Please trust me. Not everyone can handle the second 2.0 protocol, period. It's brutal. Like, it's effective, but it's brutal. Not everyone can handle that even once a week. Try it. If you're blown out, move to do you. There's three other protocols for a reason. So, and if you're going to do, you know, if you want to, you might get away with protocol 1.0 once a week and protocol 2.0 once a week. To be able to do protocol 2.0 twice a week, you're going to have to be really, uh, uh, yeah. You might. I've known the occasional person, but it's rare. That's the exception. And it's all, it's already easy enough to overtrain when you're when you're contest dieting. So just be be aware. It takes a lot. It will take a lot out of you. Now that comes back to the leg training thing, right? Because some of how often you can do intervals on a diet, how often are you training legs? So... Because this is what people forget. They forget about how all this overlaps. And realize most, most cardio machines are lower body dominant. Yeah, there's rowing, there's the EFX, there's ski like, but by and large, right, upper body doesn't have this much of a problem. There's also more muscle groups. If you're already training legs intensely twice a week, and you add interval training yeah, hear you. twice a week, can you hear me? Yeah, okay, you. hang on. I gotta let my dog out real quick. <clears throat> this means that you're now training your legs intensely four times a week. You know, if I told you on a contest diet that I wanted you no. to lift weights with your legs four times a week, would you do it? No, because it would be ridiculous. It is essentially. It's not the same, but it's still four high-intensity workouts a week. Now, let's say you're training on more of a quote-unquote bro split, and you're training legs once a week. Yeah. Say on a Monday. Like, okay, so let's say you're training legs twice a week on a Monday, Thursday. Yeah. Right? Well, let me come back to that. Sorry. Let's say you're training legs once a week on a Monday. That's your leg day. You might conceivably do the interval protocols yep. on Wednesday and Friday. Right? That would essentially be three yep. leg training days a week. And if you were going to, let's say you were going to do 1.0 once a week and 2.0 once a week, I would do 1.0 on Wednesday because you're probably still a little tired from Monday. 
Do 2.0 on, on Friday. You've got two days to recover. You might survive that for a while. You might not. You can try it. If you only end up being able to do the the, the, the interval protocol once a week. So essentially treat it as a, Monday, a leg day, so no more than three or four leg days per week. And two of those being with weights. Three or four leg days per week. Yeah. And two of those being with weights. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly how I would conceptualize it. Now, one thing that I so let's say you're training. So you're training legs twice a week on Monday, Thursday. Where do we put? I would guess afterwards, right after if the you're leg day. Do them. And there's I would two. Guess afterwards, right after the leg no, day. Well, well I would when probably you say, say after, it depends. You the same day or if you, you do it on the after. same day, well then you're gonna not you're gonna be sore anyway, but you don't want to be sore every day. So if you do it on the same day, but then again, I wouldn't do the day before because that's definitely gonna affect your performance, right? Correct. So you kind of have two options here. Never do it the day before because your leg day will suffer, period. And the last thing you want to do is limit weight training at the end of the day. Weight training and sufficient protein is the most important part of any diet, but especially contest prep. Everything else is set. So you never want to use a metabolic conditioning workout in such a way that it affects your weights negatively. So if you were lifting Monday, Thursday, you would not want to do the interval protocol on a Sunday for sure. Even on a Saturday, depending on your recovery, you might not be recovered by Monday. That's an individual thing, right? I probably wouldn't put, I wouldn't put it on a Wednesday before Thursday leg workout. So probably the ideal days, if you lift legs on Monday, Thursday, yeah. would be Tuesday, Friday, if you were going to do it on separate days, right? You would have two very hard days in a row, but the interval protocol You get that double, double bed effect as well, I guess. the weight days. Which is the priority? Double double bed effect as well, I guess. Sure, it's all yeah. It's also it could give you a little bit of a double benefit, right? Because weight training, depending on how you do it during prep, can have a little bit of a you know the the old idea of oh I'm gonna lift and then go do cardio afterwards. Yeah, shockingly that was shown mm. to use more fat for fuel because the bros weren't all idiots. You know everything they said was not even in the evidence based world. They got a lot right. You can never deny that, and that was shown metabolic. Yeah, that was correct. But yeah, so you would get kind of a double benefit potentially, but you have to balance that against long-term recovery, and it can wear you out. So something I've recommended for a really long time that seems very counterintuitive, and it's actually you brought it up, and I think it's the better way to do it. Do them on the same day. Now, sequencing becomes important. Most people do metabolic conditioning when? In the morning and lift in the afternoon. If you were to do the interval protocols Monday and Thursday morning, your mm-hmm. Monday and Thursday leg The only issue with that, I guess, suck. is that it's pretty difficult to then take your Himbian as well because you're not going to train fasted legs and then do fasted hit cardio. You'll just die or, or maybe. Sure, but I'll, I'll – but yeah, but I, it – and this gets a little more complicated. When you exercise, insulin levels go down. So – so, so it, it's it's hard to see, you know, like, so let's say you're going to lift weights at five, you have a pre-workout meal at four, insulin's down a little bit by the time you train, you train insulin, go, you know, if you took Yohimbine at the start of your leg workout, um, it, it wouldn't be optimal, but it would be doable, right? So like in an ideal world, you would train legs earlier in the day having eaten, because as long as you've gone about three to about four hours from a meal, your insulin, you're not completely fasted, but you'd be close enough, right? So let's say you're an individual that, like, you can only go to the gym at 5 because you have a job or whatever. You're going to go do your cardio at 5, and you want to use Yohimbi. Yeah. 
Well, you're not going to fast until 6 o'clock. Well, if you're an intermittent yeah. fasting zealot, you might. But you know what I mean. Well, in that case, I would say, okay, eat eat a meal at 1. And then yeah, yeah. you'll be fasted enough, if that makes any sense. Insulin will be low like, enough. It's yeah. not as ideal, but it's workable. Insulin will be low enough. Yeah, and again, this is a place where you might be faced with, you know, him being is not workable for yeah. you because of your scheduling. So that's why I give multiple protocols. So in an ideal world, let's go back to the interval thing. Like let's say you're trying to train legs and do this, the interval protocols on the same day. If your schedule allowed it, I would say do weights in the morning and then do the interval protocol later in the day. But many people's schedule won't allow that. In a more ideal world, you might, you know, lift at 5 o'clock and go back to the gym at 8. But that's also probably not realistic for a lot of people. Right, when I was speed skating in Salt Lake City, we, we did that. We did eight workouts a week, but they were all doubled up. So I would skate from five to seven, and then I would take an hour break, and then I would either go ride the bike and do intervals, or I'd go lift weights. And it sucked, because I got an hour break between workouts, but skating was my priority. If I lifted before skating, my skating sucked. It was a terrible schedule, but it was what we had. So you could do that, yeah. not ideal, or maybe you could lift at lunch. And then yeah, I think for most people, the probably six or seven. best or, or most sustainable way to do it without having to do you know, double gym sessions, because I even personally hate doing double gym sessions, but we may be doing the the legs and then doing the the next day and just for, in terms of practical applications. like into that you know the the other one you know and some of this will depend on what your leg training looks like like some people do kind of semi-metabolic training during prep i don't recommend it i don't particularly care for it generally but you know like i said you can you could use metabolic weight work as the interval portion right so so you might set up a leg work and go okay the first 30 minutes i'm gonna get my heavy work in right i'm gonna hit my maintenance six to eight whatever go heavy to maintain muscle mass End of that workout, do 20 minutes of circuit training, complexes, high repetition work, you know, like the UD2 depletion workouts. Go sets of 15 to 20 on a short rest interval. There's your interval workout. Rest five minutes, go to the treadmill for 30 minutes. Boom, combine the workouts. That's another way to do it. If you don't like metabolic weight training, because it sucks, okay, you've done your weight workout. Catch your breath, take 15 minutes, Go do the interval. Go do the stubborn fat protocol right now. Go get. Go pick a. Go pick a non-skilled cardio piece. Elliptical is good. Running is not good. Stationary bike is good. Rower. Just do a short stubborn fat protocol. Warm up for five minutes. Do ten minutes of intervals. Five minute break. Twenty minutes of cardio. It's an extra forty minutes. It sucks. But just do it, you know, you can do it right afterwards. It will hurt, it will be hard because your legs are tired, but you're going to be tired the next day anyway. So that's another option. That depends on, can yeah, you stay in the yeah. gym for three hours? Do you want to be in the gym for three hours? Yeah. So there's, so yeah, I think in a practical sense, doing it the next day is probably optimal from a scheduling standpoint. If you could do weights in the morning and do the protocols and don't care and don't mind doing double workouts, which I agree, it sucks. Um, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you have a piece of equipment at home you can do it on. But there are there are other ways of doing it. You can lift your weights, do a short metabolic, you know, 10 minutes of metabolic 
depletion weight workout. Yeah, and you have a lot more um, examples and, and talking about or this yeah. in, in your book, right? In your book, right? Yes, I tried to address this in a lot of different because there are. I, I can't always predict what somebody's, like I said, their gym schedule, their life schedule, their eating schedule, their like their training schedule, and that's why these different, you know. And if it just works out that you cannot work the stubborn fat protocols on, and it happens, right? Some people there will be no either they can't recover it on alternate days. Whatever it is, well, that's why there's other options. Yeah. And I mean that is hopefully the, you can use yeah. one of them. And you and, and you will and you will have to find how it integrates. So that is a complete overview of stubborn fat loss. I know we were going to talk about a rapid fat loss, but we did say before the podcast that I wanted to go in depth into some topics rather than being so broad because it it's more interesting for the listener and to be honest, uh, it's very interesting for me. So if people want to, fo- be honest, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so, for me, so. Uh, yeah, we definitely want to talk about rapid fat loss yeah, and, and protein sparing yeah. and modern fast as well in the future. But if people want to find more information specifically about stubborn fat loss uh, and more about you and your books, where can they find you? So my website, bodyrecomposition.com. I've been around forever. I think I've got like 500 articles. I've got some stuff about rapid fat loss. That will get you to the store, store.bodyrecomposition.com, where all my books are available. I've got like 14 of them now. Um, I do have a support forum. It's dead. Forums, I think, are brought mostly dead in the modern era of social media. You'll probably find me most easily in my Facebook group, also called Body Recomposition, because of course it is. Um, it is very active. I am on there daily. Importantly, and I always like to, I always really want to point this out, I, there's a lot of people in my group that are, I mean, they're way smarter than I am, but more importantly, they have expertise that I don't, right? I, I tend to be somewhat of a generalist, but it's all training, diet, nutrition, supplement related, um, I've, we've got one or two, uh, physicians. We've got a fantastic OBGYN, some eating disorder specialists, three or four great physiotherapists, uh, several people that are experts on performance enhancing drugs. If that's what you want to get more information on, um, daily people will ask top about topics that I know nothing about, like particular disease states or pathologies or injuries. But we have people, invariably, I don't care what it is, it's the weirdest thing. Somebody will ask about some obscure disease I've never heard of. And like three people in my group have had it and are experts on it. And I learn daily from the people in my group. So anything that I can't answer, there will be someone in my group that can answer it with some degree of expertise. Um, We do, people will put up exercise technique videos and I'll give feedback and I'll, I mean, I post up abstracts and articles and I'll do exercise technique videos when I get bored and need to show somebody something. So my Facebook group, I said my my website is where all my articles live, my store is where all my books live, and my Facebook group is pretty much where Yeah, I thanks live. so much Lars for coming so, on. I definitely want to get you back on the future. Are your best and uh, I can definitely vouch for your Facebook group because I too ask a lot of questions in there. But like I said, you've seen it. People, there's always somebody that has, I mean, there's a lot of people that have dumb answers, but there's always somebody that has good answers to just about any question I've ever seen. It's bizarre. So that was it. That was episode two with Lyle McDonald. As you can tell, he's very, very knowledgeable in the area of fat loss and stubborn fat loss specifically, which we went really in depth to in this episode. So again, if you found this valuable, please do leave some feedback 
or a review on whatever platform you're watching on you can find all of lyle's uh, social links and everything that he talked about in the show notes as well as some of my own and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode where hopefully we can get a guest who's just as good as lyle